Obadiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Amos, Obadiah. And then if you get to Jonah, you've gone, you've gone too far. Literally, it's like, depending on your Bibles, it'll be like just two pages. I'll give you just one more second. I see a bunch of flipping of pages. I know you can miss it easily. All right, Book of Obadiah, verses 1 through 4, and then 20 and 21. The word of the Lord says this. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who lived in the cleft of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And then verse 20 and 21. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem or who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Lord God, there is a great message of justice and hope that you have for us this morning. We ask that you will speak mightily by the power of your spirit to our hearts, both to convict and yet encourage in immense and mighty ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So you may or may not know this, but Obadiah is the shortest book in the Bible. Again, it's only uh, in the bulk. Uh, it's only twenty-one verses long, and the bulk of those verses, about seventeen, are concerned with the judgment, sin, and destruction of a particular people, the people of Edom. So it's a pretty happy book. Um, even though it can be hard to date this book, we can gather from the internal information that it was written after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, and this was part of Edom's sin, as we'll see, and it was before Edom's destruction in 553 BC. And the primary author is identified as Obadiah, and we don't know a lot about him, but we do know that he is a prophet, which is why it says in the first part of verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Obadiah had received a vision from God, and as a prophet, he did his job to make it known. But who is he speaking to? Who was his primary audience? Was it the people of Edom? Was he trying to, to warn them about the coming destruction, like Jonah with the Ninevites? And we'll learn more about that next week. Or was it someone else? If you look to most of the other prophets, with the exception of Jonah... They're all giving their prophecies, which include judgment on other nations. But they're giving these prophecies to either the people of Israel in the northern kingdom or to Judah 
in the southern kingdom. Add to this the fact that Obadiah ends with his whole prophecy with the hope of exiles returning to the promised land in verses 19 to 21. And it becomes clear that the primary audience is God's people who are in exile in Babylon. But that still doesn't help us to understand why. Why is God putting such an intense focus on Edom? And in order to do that, I know you'll love it, but we need a little history lesson, okay? So some of you would be like, yay! Some of you would be like, ugh. But we do. We need a little history lesson about Edom, and in particular, their relationship with Judah, so that we can understand why God is pronouncing such a harsh judgment against them. And I promise I will try to keep this as succinct as possible. So it all began back in Genesis 25, verses 19 to 26, where Rebecca, that Rebecca is Isaac's wife, She's about to give birth to two sons, Jacob and Esau. But before they were born, they seemed to be struggling in her womb. And so she went to the Lord and she's like, Lord, like, what is going on? What is happening in my womb? And the Lord says this in Genesis 25, 23. He said, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older, which is Esau, shall serve the younger which is Jacob. And from there, a series of events happens that puts Esau in the place where he hates and is against his brother. So Jacob makes Esau sell him his birthright for food in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. And when their father Isaac is about to die in Genesis 27, he wants to bless Esau as his heir, but instead Jacob comes and tricks his father, and his father blesses him instead. And in the process of that, Esau ended up not only hating Jacob, but decided that he was going to kill him. This, of course, makes Jacob flee. And as Jacob's fleeing, he ends up wrestling with a man in the desert whom we find out is actually God himself. And at the end of that wrestling, you might remember this, God said to Jacob, you will no longer be Jacob, but your name is Israel. And after that, Jacob had 12 sons who became the eventual nation of Israel. And now even though Jacob and Esau, they eventually semi-reconciled in Genesis 34, if we fast forward to Genesis 36, we get this strange chapter where we get a whole chapter devoted to Esau's descendants, just kind of plopped there right in the middle of Genesis. And we learn at the beginning of that genealogy that Esau and his descendants are the nation of Edom. And so Jacob is associated with Israel and Esau is associated with with Edom. And all throughout their history, as the Lord said to Rebekah, they have been struggling against one another. We get a picture of this struggle in 2 Samuel 8, 11 to 14, and it says this of David. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David and the people of Jacob, again, Jacob being Israel, they were at war with the Edomites. 
And David and his army, as it says, not only struck down 18,000 Edomites, but he also made them servants and slaves, which again, going back to what God said to Rebekah, fulfills the last line of those words where it said, the older Esau or the Edomites will serve the younger Jacob or Israel. But that slave-master relationship doesn't last. And eventually, in the days of Jehoram, king of Judah, the Edomites rebel against Israel. Look with me at 2 Kings 8, 20-22. It says, In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zaire with all of his chariots and rose by night. And he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him. But his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. And this rebellion and adversarial relationship has been going on ever since. Which then brings us, it brings us to the present reality of the book of Obadiah. Again, Judah, who was referred to as Jacob in verse 10, and Edom, they're still struggling with one another. But in this particular moment, Edom has the upper hand. Judah and Jerusalem, they've been ransacked by the Babylonians, and Edom, Esau's descendants, and of course Judah's kinsmen, have not only rejoiced at their destruction, but have committed violence against God's people as they aided the Babylonians in this war against Judah. And God, in response, speaks to his people through Obadiah. He speaks to them so that he can expose Edom's wrong, so that he can pronounce judgment on them, and at the same time can give hope to his exiled people that he will, in fact, restore them to their land. And so now that you kind of understand that historical background, we are actually kind of set to look at this book and to see what's actually contained in this prophecy. And as we walk through these 21 verses, what I have for you this morning is five points. And I know that sounds like a lot. You're like, five points. But I promise they're not going to be that long. And the points are this. One, that God humbles the proud. Two, that God repays those who are evil. Three, that God brings evil deeds to light. Four, that God will be victorious over his enemies, and this includes Edom. And that five, God gives hope to scattered exiles. And though each of these points won't be super long, I hope that we will not only see the grandeur, the power, the justice, and the mercy of our great God, but that we will see the present and future hope that God has for us. Those who are strangers, who are aliens, who are exiles in this world, while also realizing that the judgment against Edom, it also has an application and a warning for us as God's people. It would be very easy to read a book like this and assume that it applies to other people and not to us. And yet God, even in the judgment of Edom, still has a warning for us today. And so with that, Let's look at our first point for this morning. God humbles the proud. Once again, Obadiah 1 through 4. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rocks, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
So the first thing that we learn in this prophecy is that some sort of messenger has been sent out with a message against Edom. And most commentators believe that this messenger that's been sent out, it's more than likely some sort of angel. And the message that went out to the surrounding nations was to rise up for battle, meaning that God was calling the surrounding nations to rise up and fight against Edom. And this message against Edom was so important to communicate to God's people that it was also picked up by the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 49:14, it says almost the same thing. It says, I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. But why? Again, why is God specifically and emphatically calling for the nations to rise up for battle against Edom? There are, of course, many reasons, but the first that we're going to encounter this morning is their pride. Obadiah 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So if you don't know much about the Edomites and where they lived, God had said that they would inherit a certain place. And that place was Mount Seir, according to Deuteronomy 2.22. And because they lived in a mountain, right? And you can kind of imagine that, being a people that live on a mountain. But because they lived on a mountain, in their pride, they thought they were indestructible. As God was bringing destruction upon Judah through the Babylonians, these people in the mountains thought that they were safe. And they didn't believe anybody could hurt them. They truly believed that they were invincible. And yet God had another message. In fact, look at these verses. Obadiah 2 and 4. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Or verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Edomites might believe that they're invincible. They might believe that they are indestructible because they live in a high mountain. But the truth is that they cannot escape the God of the universe. As Mary sings in this song, in her song in Luke 1, 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And just as God will make the Edomites small, and just as he will bring them down in their pride, so too God will humble all those who oppress his kingdom and his people. Those outside the church who pridefully see no need of God, who believe that they're wise in their own eyes, or who look down upon the church because they believe that religion is the cause of all the evils in the world. Or those inside the church who elevate themselves above their brothers and sisters. Maybe they think, oh, my theology is better than yours. Maybe they feel like they're godlier than somebody else. Oh, look at your life. I'm so much more spiritual than you are. Or even they believe that they know what the church needs even more than its elected leaders. I know that was me. As a young believer, that was absolutely me. And the God of heaven, he speaks against all these forms of pride and says, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God will and does humble the proud. 
That's our first point for this morning. Second, God repays those who are evil. Obadiah 5 through 9. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. How you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Next slide. Will I not on that day, declares the, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Seir? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Temen, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So Obadiah, he opens this section with two contrasting kind of images. There's the thieves and there's the grape gatherers. And when the thieves come, they only steal what they can carry. And when the grape gatherers come, they leave gleanings, which means that they leave grapes behind. And now this might seem like it's strange kind of in the midst of this prophecy, but I believe if we look to verse 6, this whole thing makes sense. And it says this, Obadiah 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. And the point here is that, it, is that if it were simply thieves coming against Edom, there'd be treasures left. And if it were simply grape gatherers coming to gather grapes, there'd be fruit left over. But no, the living, holy, and mighty God is coming against them, which means that they are going to be ransacked. They're going to be pillaged in all of their treasures, everything they own, everything they hold dear, including all of their men, is going to be taken from them. Verse 9, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Temen, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. But this question comes up again. Why? Why is God so mad at Edom and so bent on destroying them? I know we're going to learn more about exactly what their crimes are in the next point we begin to see their evil doing and their wrongdoing right in the middle of this section. Verse 7. All of your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So who were Edom's allies? It was the Babylonians. They made a pact with the Babylonians against the people of Judah. And what can only be called either an ironic twist or poetic justice, it is the same Babylonians who will eventually destroy Edom in 553 B.C. Now, if this is for God's people, can you imagine how good it would be to hear this? Your enemy, those who allied themselves against your captors, I am going to destroy them. I don't know about you, but as I read this, there are two things that happen for me. One, it gives me a lot of hope. But two, it also gives me pause. It gives me hope that every assault that comes against the church, it is going to be put down because God repays evil. 
fact, right now, we see this very clearly happening in our culture. Those who have fought so hard for gender, gender equality and have labeled conservative Christians as bigots within this culture war are finding themselves fighting a different war. They're not fighting amongst themselves over whether or not transgender men and women can participate in sports within their preferred gender. Have you seen this? It's happening. Meaning those who are allies of evil have now turned against one another. And God and his justice will repay them according to their deeds. As he says in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But it also gives me pause. It gives me pause because we can too easily get caught up in these same culture wars. As things are changing rapidly around us, we begin to forget where our hope is. Instead of trusting in the sovereign God who makes nations rise and fall and who works for the flourishing of his, of his people, instead, we believe that we need to find worldly solutions to these problems. And so we put our hope and trust in fallen politicians and in man-made laws. And at times, we find ourselves, as strange as it is, we find ourselves aligning with groups that are completely hostile to the things of Christ. And yet we somehow delude ourselves into believing that we are doing God's work. As if he needs our human hands instead of realizing that we will be held accountable. We will be held accountable for our misplaced trust and our alignment with evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all, that is all people, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so take hope and take warning. Whether outside or inside the church, like Edom, God will repay those who are evil. Third point. God brings evil deeds to light. Verses 11 to 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So now Edom's crimes come fully to light. And in verse 10, we learn that he's committed violence against Judah. But what kind of violence? The first part of verse 11 tells us that they stood aloof. And they stood aloof as the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They knew what was happening. They knew that Judah was being pillaged and broken, and they did nothing. 
And if that isn't bad enough, then in verse 12, it says that they gloated over Judah. They were so smug and so happy about the falling of Judah. They were probably cheering the Babylonians going, yeah, let's go. And then in the face of Judah's shame and fallen status, the people of Edom were emboldened. According to verse 11 and 13, they went into Jerusalem and they were looting the city. And then in verse 14, instead of helping the Jews, Jews that were coming to them seeking refuge, it says they cut them off. They cut them off, they took them captive, and they walked over and they gave them up to the Babylonians. And if you've been sitting here and waiting and wondering, what is it exactly that Edom did? It's right here. They didn't help. They gloated and rejoiced over Judah's destruction. They looted Jerusalem, and they handed the refugees over to the evil king of Babylon. And God and his justice has not forgotten their deeds. And he will judge them accordingly. And now I know, and we've said this in other sermons, I know that it feels like at times God turns a blind eye to evil. We see evil prevailing all around us, and it can feel like God doesn't care. But our God never turns a blind eye to the plight of his children, and he never turns a blind eye to evil. God sees all the children who are aborted. He sees all the evils that are, that are done to children in our country and in our world. He sees all the acts of murder and violence and sexual perversion. He sees all the vehement hate and vitriol that at many times can come against us and against the church. And he sees all that people are doing to try to limit the power of God and the ability of the gospel to be preached in our nation and in the world. And he sees all the dark crevices of everyone's heart and all that is done in open and all that is done in secret. And nothing escapes God. And not only does he see it, but he says that he will expose it. As it says in Luke 18, 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And when our God, when he ultimately exposes evil, he also lets us know that he's going to do something about it. And whether he does something in our day or in eternity to come, he is going to act. And that's our next point for this morning. Point four, that God will be victorious over his enemies, including Edom. Obadiah 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. The word for that stands at the beginning of these two verses becomes the turning point. And it's the turning point where we turn from the recounting of, God, of, of Edom's pride and their crimes and the verdict of their guilt. And now we turn to sort of the reading of the punishment. 
And it also connects the punishment with all that's come before it, meaning that because of their pride, because of their gloating, they're rejoicing in destruction, they're looting, they're capturing God's people, it says the day of the Lord is coming. And now in Scripture, the day of the Lord, again, it says it a lot in Scripture, and that can point to either what we would call the eschatological future, say that ten times, the eschatological future when, either, when Christ is going to return, or it can refer to a time in the near future when God brings judgment upon a people and vindicates his own character and kingdom purposes. And in the fuller section of verses 15 to 21, I believe that we can see both of these ideas present, right? There's both the near and the far future. But in these two verses, I believe that the immediate application is to Edom and the nations that have come against God's people. Meaning that, that all the Edomites and the Babylonians have done will be done to them. Their evil deeds, according to verse 15, basically will come back and they will bite them in the end. And this language is then emphasized and expanded in the verse, the, go back one, in the first uh, part of verse 16 when it says, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. And that might seem like weird language, but it's actually something that is very common in scripture and it points to judgment. And we can see it in Jeremiah 25, 17 through 21 and verse 26. And he says, So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse. As at this day, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon. And then 26, and after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched gangster movies or not, but in, in gangster movie language, this is sort of that everyone's getting whacked sort of thing happening. So the drinking that Edom and the nations are doing is the reality that they are drinking God's judgment upon themselves, which will ultimately result in their destruction. As it says in the last part of Obadiah 16, they shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. God will bring destruction upon and gain victory over his enemies, including Edom. God will not let evil go unpunished. He's never done that in the past, and he will not do that in the future. As it says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But this whole prophecy, as hard as it is to see, is not just about judgment. It's not just about wrath. It's not just about victory over his enemies. It's also about hope. And so if you've been listening up to this point and you're kind of shrinking down and you see because you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of judgment. There is hope. And that's our final point for this morning. That God gives hope to scattered exiles. Obadiah 17 through 21. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape 
and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those that the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those that uh, Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. And they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Here we have God's message of hope. And it's a message of hope to the scattered exiles in his day and yet to us who are exiles today. Yes, God scattered the people of Judah. He is definitely the one that sent them into exile in Babylon. Yes, they were destroyed, disgraced, and displaced. And yet God isn't done with them. As it says in verse 17, the house of Jacob, God's people, they will once again have their own possession. And then 19 and 20 make it clear that they will once again, they will, they will actually possess the physical promised land. And in God's goodness, they saw a partial fulfillment of this. If you remember the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiles come back, right? That's that partial fulfillment of that. And God, despite their sin and all the evil that was said against them, restored the scattered exiles to their land. And in so doing, reminded them that he is their God and that they are his treasured possession. But again, as I said, there was a, a fulfillment in their day, but there's also a greater fulfillment to this. And it's what, it's what the prophet's pointing to when he says, back one. When he says right at the end of verse 21, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. A day is coming. A day is coming when all the Jews and the sojourners of, of past eras who put their hope in the coming Messiah and all those, including us, who have now put their hope in Christ, we will inherit a heavenly and eternal kingdom. A kingdom not built with human hands, not built with human ingenuity, not built by human effort, but a kingdom inherited by faith in the one true God and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. For he is the God who will not only humble the proud, he is not only the God who will repay those who are evil, he is not only the one who will expose evil and darkness for what it truly is, he is not only one, the one who will gain victory over his enemies and the enemies of his people. He will do all of those things. But he is also the God who tells us, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. But instead, be ready. Put your full hope and your full trust in me. Because I'm coming for you. I am coming for you. And I want to end with this beautiful verse out of Hebrews 9, 28. And it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. This is so good. 
but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Let's pray.